it's kind of insane to see just the amount of like activity and excitement around the space like there's you know people training and fine tuning deep learning models that you know weren't even in the space like a few months ago and that's really awesome right and that i had like people who were like oh i i really like guardrails i really like open ai but it's just too expensive for what i'm trying to build and so i can you make this work with you know an open source model as an example um so i i do think that we're going to see a lot of that that um proliferation happening of you know great performing models from like different price points, different latencies, different providers, etc. Hello, and welcome to The Cognitive Revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week, we'll explore their revolutionary ideas, and together we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan LeBenz, joined by my co-host, Eric Torenberg. Hello, and welcome back to The Cognitive Revolution. Today, my guest is Shreya Rajpal, a former machine learning engineer at Apple and founding engineer at Predibase, who is now best known as the creator of Guardrails AI, a new Python library that allows developers to add a layer of output validation and correction to their code. As anyone who's spent time building AI-powered products over the last two years will attest, validation, and even more so reliability, are key challenges. LLMs simply don't always follow instructions and sometimes go entirely off the rails. Better models have helped tremendously, it's true. GPT-4 can follow instructions far more reliably than earlier models, and Claude V1.3 is also very impressive. But with this elevated capability also comes expanded developer ambition. And so it seems that for the foreseeable future, the problem of LLM reliability will remain both critical and ubiquitous. Trey's work tackles this problem in many ways and at multiple levels. Super practically, guardrails can ensure a reliable interface between language models and more traditional, deterministic software systems. Validations like, did the language model return data with the right type and format? Or did the model choose a value from the list of allowable values that we provided? These are very familiar questions for developers and are still powered in guardrails by traditional code. But at the same time, and for me, this is clearly the more novel, exciting, mind-bending, and potentially risky use case. Frameworks like guardrails allow developers to ask and answer entirely new kinds of questions. Assessments of things like the quality of a summary or translation, or whether a given piece of text contains any redundancies, inconsistencies, or gaps in logic. These are the sort of things that, until recently, developers simply had no way to validate. Thus, for product and engineering teams around the world, Guardrails is both a solution to a very practical problem at hand, and a sort of introduction or bridge to an emerging paradigm of AI-first software development that goes well beyond the Copilot-style autocomplete or even chat interfaces that we've recently seen, and begins to use AI functions not just as development tools, but as components of the production technology stack itself. Talking to Shreya really reinforced for me just how early we are in LLM's impact on the software industry. The core AI capabilities needed to transform software, as far as I can tell, mostly already exist. What remains, though, is the work of reimagining not only how software is built, but how it functions now that intelligence can be baked in at any point. Personally, I believe that this paradigm shift could ultimately unlock bigger productivity gains and more user value 
than the current generation of tools that increase developer speed, but don't yet attempt to change the kind of software that they're building. At the same time, this is also something to be approached with real care and caution. The delegation of AI output validation to other AI models is not a step to be taken lightly or taken for granted. I hope you enjoyed this thought-provoking conversation with Shreya Rajpal of Guardrails AI. Shreya Rajpal, welcome to the Cognitive Revolution. Yeah, really excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. So this is the first time that I've invited a guest basically as soon as I got off the call recording a previous episode. It was Matt uh, Welsh, uh, CEO of Fixie.ai, who mentioned your new project, Guardrails AI. And I was immediately like, okay, I have to learn <laughs> everything I can about this. So I'm really excited to uh, dive into it with you. I guess let's start with what made you say, you know, a couple months ago, I need to build a system to help people keep their language models on the rails. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, um, it, I was really solving my own pain points and my own problems. So um, I had been, end of last year, I'd kind of been like doing some tinkering on my own where I was building some applications. Um, and even as I was building them, I was like, yeah, this is really cool. I think it was not, not nothing very exciting, you know, a lot of like what you're seeing on on Twitter about, you know, chatting over um, proprietary documents, et cetera. And I was building that and I realized, yeah, this is pretty cool. I can see the potential with this. But even as I'm kind of like, um, you know, as a developer, like testing it out, like I can tell that it doesn't, you know, get me reliably the desired experience, the experience that I want, you know, uh, to achieve. And so I think it was this big problem where these language models are really potent and they're really powerful, uh, but they're also, you know, inherently very stochastic and very hard to control. Um, the other kind of like uh, what makes this very interesting is that like unlike traditional machine learning, how this is different is that as a developer, you haven't really trained the model. So you can't just, you know, um, throw more data at it, like make it work really well for your use case. Uh, and then separately, the only knob you really have as a developer is, you know, like here's this prompt. Uh, and if you wanted to, you know, like maybe uh, do something or not do something, like how people, how developers typically deal with that is just, you know, adding like a lot of verbiage in the prompt and maybe a lot of like exclamation marks, et cetera, to like make it listen to you, right? And that just seems like woefully inadequate. Um, and so guardrails is this idea of, uh, uh, you know, a specification framework where uh, as a developer, you know what the right output for an LLM looks like and you're able to, you know, like decompose that and deconstruct that and, you know, individually validate and verify um, uh, each component of that output. Um, and then, you know, if any of those components fails and if any of those quality criteria that, that you impose on it fails, then, you know, it gives you a set of tools to address that in a very extensible manner. Um, so I was building this and I was like, yeah, I, I need, like, I know what responses I want a user to be able to get from this thing that I'm building and how do I ensure that, um, uh, you know, I'm always able to do that for a wide variety of scenarios. And so that was kind of some of the inspiration. Um, it also... Um, it's spelled in spent some years in, you know, um, autonomous systems and self-driving. And, you know, it's a similar problem there as well, where you have uh, this like really powerful deep learning based uh, perception model that often feeds into, you know, this more um, a more rule based like decision making system. And how do you essentially ensure that the interface between that stochastic system and that deterministic system is, you know, robust and, and not brittle whenever like the perception system like maybe doesn't do as well. Um, and so uh, the idea was, you know, to like, it was, it was inspired by like some techniques you'd kind of see there, but like a uh, build for language models and build in a very extensible way so that it's not very domain specific. Um, those, yeah, some of the inspiration. Yeah. 
you know, as much as possible, I love to get super concrete on these things. This is clearly a pain point that a lot of people have. The project has, you know, gone on its own little rocket ship ride of GitHub stars with 1,200 uh, as of last check at the time of this recording. Uh, but probably a lot of people listening also could use a little bit more of like a concrete example of like, okay, what kind of thing are you looking for and how is it failing? And then, you know, can you kind of tell us maybe a couple of those and then how does the guardrails, you know, come in and, and save the day in those instances? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I love that question. <laughs> I, I love digging deep into the details, so I'm happy to do that. Um, I think when I was prototyping guardrails, um, my my favorite like kind of prototype example was that I have this you know Chase credit card agreement, uh, which was like my own credit card agreement, and I want to extract like what are the key terms etc from that credit card agreement. You know, get a nice JSON out of it, uh, and I want like some I, as a user I know that okay if I'm extracting something like an interest rate it must always be a number you know it must be maybe a percentage sign in it, you know, like what is a reasonable range for that? Um, if I'm maybe extracting like the name of like a specific fee uh, and I want this name to be presented somewhere, I know that the name should be, you know, very, uh, very concise. It should be like very verbose, et cetera. So uh, I think like one of the, uh, so the common failure points, et cetera, there is that, you know, like if I want to extract this information and then it needs to be like maybe added to some downstream data sync, like it's hard to do that. Um, you know, reliably, consistently from an LLM because an LLM, you know, doesn't behave um, um, reproducibly, essentially. So uh, in this, like, structured data extraction setting, I could essentially enforce constraints of, like, what I want each extracted entity to look like. So, for example, um, the interest rate must be a number, must be within this range, the um, there must be a description with each interest rate and, you know, the description maybe needs to be, you know, some, some length or some um, uh, needs to be relevant to, like, whatever the, um, whatever the, uh, whatever the entity that it, it uh, you know, uh, is coming along with. So I think like all of those constraints are like what I want to impose on this JSON structure. Um, so that was a use case that I was prototyping it. I think since then I have a ton of examples on my documentation, but like one of my favorite ones is uh, text to SQL. Um, so in text to SQL, it's like a wildly different domain, but a lot of the same ideas apply, uh, which is, you know, that you want correctness from any generated like SQL query. So the idea is that as a user, you want to be able to ask natural language queries over your data and get like a SQL query that you can maybe execute, right? So a lot of the ideas are the same, which is that, you know, you need to be able to like, what are the constraints you want to be able to impose a priori on that SQL query? So a, it must be, you know, it must actually work for my database, for the environment that I want to execute this query and other, other constraints, right? Like you may not want to return results from any specific, um, you know, tables So some tables might be private. And if you want to say like, as a customer, you uh, never want to be able to, you know, like query those tables, you can like filter those out. Um, you can add things like only support these specific SQL predicates, like if there's any like drop predicates or, you know, like maybe uh, update or insert predicates, you want to be able to filter those out. So the idea is that you can like, as you're setting up this text to SQL task, you can like add all of those constraints. Um, so how the, how Guardrail solves solve this problem is it takes your, um, it takes your database schema and sets up a SQL sandbox uh, for essentially like any SQL query that is generated, it's executed in that sandbox to make sure that, you know, um, it's executable. And if it's not executable, you take all of those errors 
uh, for why the SQL query fails to execute and like wrap those errors into something, send it back to the large language model to, you know, like correct itself and get something that actually works uh, for your specific database. And then you can add like other constraints and other restrictions on top of that, like similarly, you know, like filtering out specific tables, filtering out specific predicates, et cetera. So I think just this idea of like, um, here's a question, here's like a task I want this large language model to solve, but as a developer, I have like some domain expertise for what, what correctness means to me in this task and how much I care about that correctness. Like, is it, you know, if it's incorrect, then this query is totally useless to me, or if it's incorrect, I just want to know about it and maybe post hoc and handle it. Like, I think um, that is the main kind of like idea. And, uh, and you know, Gabriel's like takes that and allows you to like basically implement that um, as a developer. Yeah. So hopefully that was a little more, more grounded in terms of, you know, specific examples. Yeah, it's fascinating. One of the things I want to kind of explore the most in this conversation with you is the seemingly we're like opening up a spectrum or a dimension, if you will, where we can kind of go from on the one end, like explicit errors, like the errors that we are used to as developers in code, uh, you know, and, and that is could be starting with a syntax error up to, you know, more meaningful errors like, but that could still be sort of, you know, found through kind of traditional software messages like this variable doesn't exist or, you know, all sorts of things like that. But then you've got kind of a whole domain of correctness, which code has never really accessed before. And that is like, what are you trying to do? Is this, you know, does this appear to be a reasonable like approach or output or, you know, from from a much more sort of semantic or, you know, dare I say, like intelligent point of view. But I find myself a little confused or a little bit like lost in that space. And I see that you're kind of covering it in a really interesting like mix of of ways, right? In the in the library, in the validators, you know, there's a mix of validators. So maybe kind of walk us through, tell us how you think about that, I guess. And again, maybe some examples of like different validators that sit in different, you know, parts of that space. Uh, would be helpful to help people understand what the hell I'm talking about if, if it's not already clear. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a very, I think that was kind of like uh, one of the very exciting things about the library as I was building this out, which is that, um, you know, the general framework works even outside of things you can't, you know, like maybe um, use like an assert statement to verify or something, right? Like it, it, it's really extensible as a framework where you can have a mix of, you know, large language models and maybe some rule-based heuristics, some programmatic checking, as well as like more traditional machine learning models that are, you know, like uh, very maybe high precision classifiers, et cetera. And you can like ensemble all of these techniques together uh, to get something that is, you know, greater than the sum of its parts and like much more robust and much more um, uh, much more reliable compared to just using a pure large language model. Uh, so as an example of that, like I last week added uh, a bunch of um, guardrails for summarization. Um, so if you're, you know, summarizing like multiple documents and maybe generating like an aggregated summary from that, you know, there's a there's a bunch of like requirements that you may have in order to ensure that, you know, um, that summary is accurate, that summary is, you know, concise, it's not redundant, etc. Um, and so how Guardians kind of thinks about this general problem of correctness when assert statements aren't sufficient uh, is to like really break it down into like either, you know, a smaller ML task or into smaller like verifiable, um, um, you know, heuristics, etc. And, and, and tries to, you know, like get an aggregate assessment of like how well this works. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. I want to tell you about my new interview show, Upstream. 
Upstream is where I go deeper with some of the world's most interesting thinkers to map the constellation of ideas that matter. On the first season of Upstream, you'll hear from Mark Andreessen, David Sachs, Balaji, Ezra Klein, Joe Lonsdale, and more. Make sure to subscribe and check out the first episode with A16Z's Mark Andreessen. The link is in the description. OmniKey uses generative AI to enable you to launch hundreds of thousands of ad iterations that actually work, customized across all platforms with a click of a button. I believe in OmniKey so much that I invested in it, and I recommend you use it too. Use Cogrev to get a 10% discount. So in the case of summarization, what that looks like is uh, if you um, essentially want to um, um, figure out if this summary is, you know, like faithful to the original source text, um, you can, what, how you can do it is like basically look at like each sentence in the summary um, and then, you know, essentially do something like a similarity matching based on, you know, um, like which parts or which passages or sentences it's most similar to in the source text, which allows you to do much more fine-grained attribution and figure out, you know, where is the sentence that it generated coming from. Um, the other cool thing that you can do on top of this is that you can assign thresholds. So as a developer, you can like do some experimentation, figure out what is my what is my appetite for, you know, how um, how varied I want these sentences to be from the original source text, and then set a threshold. And then any sentence that that is below the threshold in terms of like similarity score, you can essentially like filter out. Um, and you know, like not not include that in the summary. So that allows you to. I, I think it's just this way of thinking about, um, um, you know, text outputs, which may seem like you know, um, like a single unit, and it basically kind of like breaks them down into like smaller chunks and independently tries to like verify that. Um, so uh, I, I think like other uh, techniques you have in summarization specifically is. Um, make sure that there, there's, you know, I want the summary to be concise, so make sure there's no like redundant information. Uh, so essentially within the generated summary, essentially make sure that like each sentence is diverse enough from, you know, like other sentences within that. And if that's not the case, maybe like filter out, uh, you know, sentences that are too similar to each other, etc. Um, so, uh, it, it, yeah, I think like the cool thing about LLMs, it's like, you know, um, we are looking at like a lot of the first order benefits of that, where you can use this and do like a bunch of like really insane tasks. But um, I think the second order benefits are that you can really use these models as verification systems, you know, in and of themselves. So you can like use a, a large language model within a validator to like, you know, verify and validate like whatever you're getting is correct. Or you can use, you know, like um, depending on your access to data and your like latency requirements, et cetera, maybe train like a smaller ML model that kind of does this for you. Uh, but like a, a truly like bring together, you know, a bunch of these different verification strategies and like get something that's more robust. So that's the philosophy behind like how guardrails tries to, um, you know, add guarantees around like what traditionally seem like harder problems to, uh, harder ML problems to verify. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I'm mapping this onto my own, use cases uh, here in real time. So I'm wearing my Waymark uh, swag today. Waymark is in the video creation space and we have, you know, it's a multi, <clears throat> excuse me, a multimodal problem, right? Where we ultimately take in some minimal information about a business and then ask the user to tell us what they want to create. And then on the other end, provide a ready to watch video. We kind of do that with like an ensemble of different models working together. But the core one is the language model that writes the script and kind of gives the direction for what the visual assets should look like and all that sort of stuff. And I mean, for one thing, boy, we've come so far 
in a year. You know, it was just a year and a half ago, basically, that I that we got the very first fine-tuned GPT-3 to do the task at all, you know, with any sort of like, it wasn't good, but it would at least like respect, you know, the nature of the inputs and outputs. And now today, GPT-4 can basically do it zero shot and like respect the outputs. And then 3.5 turbo kind of not really reliably but then I think, geez, it is like 20 times cheaper. So I guess I'm I'm interested in kind of what do you see the value drivers being for this sort of thing? To some degree, maybe like there's no other way to do it. But as I'm kind of running through my head, I'm like, so on some of these things, like GPT-4 just is pretty reliable at this point. Um, so, you know, people might want to do it for cost savings or they might want to do it for, you know, I don't know, I guess a lot of different uh, reasons, but cost savings and um, and latency are actually one, I would see like benefits to that potentially if I could move to a little bit of a less reliable model, but still like know that my stuff is going to render in the right way for our users. So what, what are you seeing in terms of like the value drivers from your community? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really great question. Um, so uh, I think there's two aspects of it. Um, so cost and latency, uh, you know, maybe being able to use like open source models or, you know, like cheaper models with like the same level of reliability, et cetera. I think like that is like one aspect. Um, but the more interesting aspect for me is, you know, like what is the task that you're truly using this model for? So, um, you know, like Waymark, there's a lot of use cases where you're using these models as maybe writing assistance or to, you know, like help you um, one of the ones, one of the products I enjoy using is like Notion AI Assist, I think is what it's called, where you draft a little bit and, you know, it helps you like maybe shape up an outline, etc. So I think for those use cases, the creativity of a large language model is actually really good and it's a desirable trait. Uh, but I think at the same time, there's this whole other um, space of use cases that are, you know, like where that rely on the, the world model uh, that is, you know, like... Um, ingrained in these large language models and you know it uses these large language models as like software abstraction to do uh, more general purpose reasoning so um, I think there's a wide variety of those use cases that are seen so for example like one of them is that um, use an LLM to basically um, you know uh, as like an AI receptionist essentially uh, where you're a small business owner and you instead of you know needing to hire a receptionist you can use a large language model and Anytime you get calls, it you know figures out scheduling, figures out who's available, etc. Um, so that's a very um, powerful capability of that model, where you know creativity is maybe not as good a thing, right? Like you wanted to maybe stick to like some desired workflow uh, that you want to be able to ask. You want to make sure that maybe you don't ask for private information if you know like a customer is calling, etc. Uh, so I think like where guardrails is like most useful is within those constraints where you use the LLM not just as a text generator, but as like a software abstraction, really. Uh, and when you're using it in that capacity, that is when like reliability becomes uh, most useful. I uh, like I, I think over the weekend, I um, uh, shared something that uh, a community contributor had built using guardrails, which was, you know, this uh, GitHub action called auto PR. Uh, and what auto PR does is it, um, you know, uh, takes a GitHub issue and then automatically creates a pull request from that GitHub issue, like for your code base. Um, and that is, you know, that is one of those use cases that has like a bunch of really strict constraints, right? Like these files must exist, uh, the code, the, the diffs that are generated must be valid for those files, et cetera. Um, and those constraints are pretty hard to um, 
um, enforced, like without having some validation framework such as guardrails on top of it. Uh, so I think like for a lot of those use cases, you know, like creativity is like not as nice a thing and you want like more reliability. Uh, and I think like it, it's still like such a powerful use case of this model that it would be, um, yeah, we would be kind of under like under utilizing their capability if we don't build software such as that, you know. Yeah, it's it's like it's a mix of both. I think even with uh, a lot of the creative creative use cases, I've kind of found that there's still like a bunch of constraints that you know people implicitly have. That you know, right now the way to do it is like via prompt tuning or prompt iteration. But truly being able to you know like encode these constraints and like maybe uh, only like instead of like manually having to do this, you know, like have uh, a validation that runs and then you know only do it like when needed is like also a pretty nice workflow uh, where you you for example you might not want any profanity in like scripts that are generated or you might if you're if you're creating like video content for someone you might not want to mention you know like um, uh, peer products or like competitors etc and so I think like those kinds of constraints are also you know like useful even with free form text uh, so it, it's it's yeah it's a mix of both. It sounds like though you are most excited about something that could not be achieved in traditional code. And I still kind of am really trying to find that line or like, I guess there's maybe just a lot of overlap. A lot of times when I get to these kind of puzzling moments as I study different aspects of AI, I end up kind of finding that it's like sort of both in the end. And there's probably a lot of truth to that here too. I'm thinking, okay, so we're in the GitHub, not the, whatever, the, the automatic pull request, auto, auto PR it was called, right? I saw this, it is cool. And super technical to some degree those responses could be validated presumably by like existing libraries like i'm sure you know the git package itself has like some way to sort of say you ain't got your shit together so you know this is not going to work and i think that's kind of what a lot of people are like naively doing is you know just kind of implementing that stuff on a case-by-case -case basis like at waymark there is no standard nobody else has our video standard like we totally define it and own it so you know it was up to us to figure out how do we represent that in text and then like what validation comes back from that so i think one thing we could maybe have tried to do is you know we did we did this before before we launched the project but i kind of wonder like if you're advising us you know and, and we were maybe a little earlier how would you think about like what points of validation we might you know ought to do through guardrails like should we be thinking about structure or should we be thinking like does this copy like satisfy the user's prompt or you know i guess there's probably a lot of room in between right those kind of stake out the like most rigid versus most kind of semantic you know desires or requirements from the model it seems like you're more interested on some level and the semantic side, but that there is this kind of like fundamental interface with computing where it gets like very syntactic as opposed to semantic as well. I think it's a good question. I do want to say before I say this, like I want to preface this by saying that like generating something and getting outputs, you know, getting feedback from the end user about, you know, is this good? Is this like, does this meet your original criteria? And doing a more like qualitative assessment uh, taking that feedback and, um, you know, going back to the drawing board, I think that's a very valid way of doing things, right? Like, I think uh, for a lot of domains, you know, like getting that human feedback and getting that human input and write-off is like essential before you can like truly um, think that this output is correct and is, is valid for, you know, whatever use case you have. But I think like for, like in the guardrails world, 
um, there's there's basically this idea that you know maybe some parts of that human feedback can be done um, by a combination of you know traditional ML uh, heuristics and maybe more large language models in the loop, right? Uh, and if you are able to you know like take some of that encode whatever that qualitative criteria is into you know like codify it into something that is more um, more specific. Um, what you're then able to do is, you know, like get generate specific like failure, um, error messages, et cetera, that help the model output correct itself. Um, right. So in terms of like maybe how that would like, I, I obviously don't know as much about Raymark, but what that might be helpful in is, you know, like maybe doing the number of like back and forths you have to do with your end customer because you're just able to take some of the, their constraints, you know, run those programmatically if they're wrong, like automatically. Um, um, uh, create like new prompts that you know tell the large language model why previous outputs are incorrect and get it to correct itself. Um, so I think this is like one of the net new capabilities that we have, you know, with large language models that didn't exist previously, which is you know their their understand like the ability to get them to like self heal or self correct themselves if you give them enough context. Um, and that is where like guardrails. Like I think a lot of the um, frame a lot of the like core functionality for guardrails, you know, like like really harnesses that, right? So what how it how it functions under the hood is like it's really good at you know um, figuring out like what the relevant context is, you know, like packaging it up nicely, automatically creating a new prompt from uh, for you, um, reaching get like getting a new response from the large language model, merging that new response, you know, with the old response that you had because it, it only it's very efficient. It only re-asks like things that are wrong, not like your whole previous output, etc. So it merges all of that together, um, and then you know you're then like that is your corrected, validated response. Sorry. <clears throat> So I think that is the world where like guardrails is most useful. Um, and and I, like with that said, it is very domain specific, right? Like there are domains where, um, um, let's say something like any text that is generated must be funny. Um, now that is something that is like next to impossible to validate. And I can't imagine like writing a validator that maybe assigns like a scoring function to humor, right? Like that's just very hard to do. And so you can't do that. And you need to have like a human in the loop. Uh, maybe there's like some other domains, right? Which have like very high stakes and very high cost to like getting something wrong, where even if like maybe you can do some pre-scoring, et cetera, uh, the actual like human, um, you know, um, um, a confirmation that this output is correct is like essential before you can do another like iteration with the, uh, uh, with the large language model, etc. So there are those domains where you know this re-asking strategy doesn't work. Uh, but I do think um, just this idea of you know like taking what is correct, like what is correctness, um, or or what does you know like an aligned output mean in your use case, and trying to like codify some of that. Um, is useful um, both in terms of you know like prompting the large language model. It allows guardrails to construct like prompts that are you know more effective at getting you what you want, and then it also allows you to do like post hoc validation. And this you know like loop of I want to systematically programmatically handle you know failures as and when they arrive uh, arise, and you know maybe that involves like re asking, maybe that involves like filtering any like incorrect output, etc. I think this is a very powerful framework to like require less human supervision and, you know, like take a lot of that pain away of like maybe going into chat GPT and like, you know, writing like, okay, this didn't work for this reason and, you know, trying to like write something else. Um, so that's, that's a world in which like, that's a hypothesis behind guardrails. Yeah. Maybe it's just because we all have agents on the brain, but as I'm listening to you describe that, I'm really going to this agent, you know, <laughs> moment that we're in and sort of, Really, when you dig into these agent 
systems, it's usually like you might think of it more classically as like a multi-agent system. In many cases, like it's the same language model playing the role of different agents. We're seeing all these examples where it's like a simulated town where, you know, GPT-4 plays all of the people or, you know, a, a research agent where there's like a planner and a coder and a, you know, retriever that all kind of work together and have their own prompts and they're all kind of scaffolded together. And then, of course, you know, these things fail a lot <laughs> because they are, you know, there's some probability of being wrong at any given point in the chain. And then you're, you're only in the naive implementation, you're only kind of as strong as the weakest link in the chain. So in a sense, I guess what I'm learning here is like this guardrails paradigm is like connective tissue <laughs> between the different roles in a like multi-agent system. And I should probably accelerate how quickly I think that these agents are going to start to work. I think it's a, uh, it's, it's a, uh, yeah, agents are very exciting. Like I, I think I've been thinking about them a bunch and trying to think about like, you know, how do you how do you make them more effective, more reliable? I think the interesting thing about agents versus how guardrails works is guardrails is you know essentially the 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 main problem that is solved is like I want to add constraints on this output so that it works for my use case, right? It works for what I wanted to work on. But essentially, it gives developers a lot of agency to think about you know like their specific the specific problems that they're solving and you know what. Um, what correctness means to them. I think like contrasting that with the uh, with agent frameworks where you know a lot of the goals of agents and a lot of the uh, the tasks of agents are like configured autonomously like by a large language model itself. So you're in this like interesting setting where the the involvement of a human or a developer in terms of you know like your ability to kind of like enter something like an agent framework and like add guarantees etc you you typically like with the agent frameworks that exist today you typically don't have access to that fine green level of you know like um a task execution or goal setting right because you're you're not the person who's configuring these uh these agents themselves so i think like there's this um so, so I think like that is that gap between like how agents operate today versus you know what what humans would ideally like to have. Like ideally, uh, if you're if you're a person who wants to you know like employ a bunch of these agents and you know maybe do research for you, etc., you want to be able to say you know like this is the set of allowable things that you're able to look at. Um, but also you want you want that to be configured dynamically based on like where agents are operating. Um, so I do think that like. So, so that is the context. And if I were to summarize into like what that means for, you know, agents, uh, I do think like constraints are essential and like correctness specs are essential, right? It's the only way to think about like, how do you, how do you assess what these large language models are doing? Like you constrain them and you, you know, you evaluate them at each step to make sure that they're not going off the rails, but like, how do you do that dynamically when uh, you're not the person who's, you know, creating these agents, setting their goals, etc. I think like that is the key problem that, uh, to solve there. Um, so yeah, it's a problem I'm very excited about. And I think it's a problem that, you know, uh, will need to get solved before these agents are like employable, before you can truly use them, you know, outside of just like seeing how exciting they are. Yeah, I guess like for agents, you know, uh, I'm always very curious to see people's use cases. So like for Waymark specifically, you know, where once again, we're like in this domain where, you know, there's like, constraints and there's like a finite scope of like what you want the large language model to do etc uh, if you've like looked at some of these agents and you know like um thought about like what is something that you would want to you know like add into what part of you know the waymark stack could be uh, aided with like agents 
Yeah, it's probably not such a great fit, I don't think, for the Waymark product experience because we do have a lot of structure. Um, I kind of think of these things as this is I still, I'm still working out this framework, but uh, I talked about this with Matt, actually, and this is part of what led to him mentioning your uh, project. So we're kind of bringing it full circle. But I, I kind of think of different mo- – I don't know if this is a spectrum or a binary or multiple categories or what exactly. But in terms of like how we interact with AI systems, there seems to be a like real-time co-pilot mode where you are doing stuff as a human and the thing is like there to kind of guide you, shepherd you, whatever. And then there's things where you're kind of ultimately delegating more because you really don't want to do it. You know, you don't want to be the person in the driver's seat or the, the entity in the driver's seat. You want to put the AI in the driver's seat, let it do it, and then look at its work once it's done or, you know, have some other sort of way to like circle that back into your life. And those workflows right now are largely done with like integrations, you know, various kinds that could be code, no code, you know, Zapier or what have you. With Waymark, it's code. And it's a pretty guided experience where like, you know, you are delegating the task of writing a script, you know, choosing all the assets for your video, et cetera. And then what you get to do is watch the output. So there's so much structure there that it's it doesn't feel like we really need an agent to like come in and you know, mix it up too much. But I, I do see the agent as sort of the bridge between these two modes where you're like, in real time, I sort of want to send something off. So if I'm in ChatGPT plus today, I can like use a plugin perhaps to look for flights. But I really more might want the thing to be like, go book me the flight for, you know, whatever date, like subject to my preferences. And ideally, like it would kind of figure out all the downstream mess of that. So where I think this is actually really relevant for me, so I'm also working with a company called Athena, which is in the executive assistant space. I also talked about this with Matt. Um, And, you know, they have those kinds of things all the time where, you know, a human today is like responsible for executing a lot of web tasks, you know, for a client. And there's kind of, you know, different aspects of the cognitive work there. One is like understanding what's going on, like translating the language to and under, you know, the, from the client, like you got a request, right? What does it mean? Uh, understanding what it means. And then the other part is like being able to like actually hit the right buttons to make it happen. And ideally we delegate that whole thing. Uh, but the agents, you know, that's where we in our kind of testing, like along with everybody else, we've kind of found, yeah, it's not, we may have an, we may have AI that can understand the request, you know, parse it effectively, you know, ask the right follow-up questions, you know, or at least suggest some pretty good follow-up questions, demonstrate a really robust understanding of like what the human wants, but we're, we're falling down very much still on like, how do you actually, you know, hit the right buttons, check out, I mean, got God forbid you have to like do a payment, you know, process, <laughs> um, or like yeah. log into something. Yeah, like two-factor authentication does still work <laughs> as a deterrent yeah. to AI login uh, for the time being, at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's kind of been like my experience uh, and and my exploration as well, which is that there's you know there's this like there's 
this interesting like wedge where agents can be useful but in order for that wedge to succeed you need this notion of like grounding right of like being able to like uh figure out like okay here's how it understands what i'm saying but like at each step of that execution you need validation so i think this idea or the, the problem of like okay, book me a flight is like very interesting because book me a flight like given my given my schedule and given my budget and where i'm trying to go right and that translates into maybe like some constraints that are then grounded like based on your calendar or based on your um uh, you, you know based on uh, like where you're trying to go and like what flights are available and so i think like validation at each like decision that the large language model makes and each action that it makes like becomes you know more important uh, for these things to succeed um but at the same time like um you know having having worked in like the self driving world a little bit like part of it is like are they able to do it and part of it is like can a human um you know this is like trust deficit right um where uh, even if even if these agents were perfect there'd be this trust deficit between how much people are comfortable you know delegating uh, and so even in terms of like building that uh, you need you know like um, you need this like verification system essentially that makes sure that each step of the way you're able to kind of like have control and have some oversight into like how they execute themselves uh, so i think those frameworks would be kind of like essential before we're able to see their uh, adoption you know outside of uh, outside of like demo use cases Yeah, it's funny that you say that. I would actually take the other side of the bet there when it comes to the human behavior. I mean, if I understand you correctly, you're saying people won't want to trust these systems unless there's good guardrails in place. I think of you as saving people from themselves because <laughs> I think people are going to be much more quick to just kind of go ahead and be like, "Yeah, it seems like it works." And why, you know, what's the worst that could happen, right? And I think we may find out, especially, you know, in a future world that the the worst could be potentially quite bad but i do kind of expect that behavior we i just recorded an episode with a um a medical uh school professor at harvard uh Zach Kohani who has just written this book the ai revolution in medicine and you know this is exactly i think the kind of system that he's looking to figure out how to implement into clinical practice right something to kind of help you know for now it's like of course the human is in the loop that's the the official recommendation but even then you know it's just so easy to get lazy it's so easy to kind of be like overly trusting especially when the models are getting so good it's it's fascinating that you can get better performance just by kind of pointing the model at itself that's one of his his big one of his big findings was a recurrent theme is that gpt4 is better at evaluating text than it is at generating And so, you know, he's starting to develop some of these like self-critique things totally on the fly like in the context of, you know, just exploration in in clinical setting. Yeah, I think this that's part of like what Gardrails like the validation system is also based on, which is that you know like it's almost like trust but verify like you get GPT to generate something with maybe uh you know have it even even if you are doing large language model based evaluation maybe you know they like, have a separate step that that does evaluation separately so that you have you know that additional layer of security and ideally um uh this is you know back from machine learning but like the more diverse uh you know evaluators you have the more kind of like guarantees they're going to be so just ha- like ensembling is a technique that you know i'm i'm pretty bullish on 
in the space is like what's going to get us that confidence um but the the medical um like ai for medicine uh, or medical assist is so fascinating because it's it's back to you know like reminds me of like uh, once again like self driving where you know like with the autonomous vehicles that are out there today maybe like tesla um fsd etc the idea is like okay you're you're still supposed to be very alert you know you're not supposed to take you know maybe your hands off the wheel or something i don't have a tesla so i don't know but uh even within that you know there's this expectation that a human should always be you know aware and like present etc right but like it, as humans it's so easy to get lazy and so one of the really thing one of the things i'm really excited about in this space is like good um you know interface design so that like we are able to like get human involvement when it's most needed and like not you know um like if you're always notifying them like hey pay attention pay attention like maybe that you know like ceases to have an effect right uh, so it's this idea of like okay how do we build this balance between like when human involvement is necessary versus like you know when we can like maybe offload some of that do that you know more programmatically or more with code i think like figuring out that balance and figuring out the interface to um to surface that balance or sur- surface that like um, a division of responsibilities to the human i think like that is very uh very exciting and very very excited to see like how that evolves i don't have a tesla either by the way but a neighbor of mine does and has the full self driving package so knowing that i'm as obsessed with ai as i am he was gracious enough to take me for a ride and first of all it works way better than people i think commonly realize like i got into the car in front of my house he put his finger on the screen like we're going to go here and hit the drive button and the car drove like it, it was not a lot of fuss between just you know map go and you're riding but when you talk about like the the reminders that's something i think they've really put a lot of engineering into as well like there's like three progressions i haven't spent a ton of time with it but there's a you know couple of i think it's three levels of first there was a little maybe visual indicator that like you haven't done anything to the wheel in a while uh there's a camera also that watches you from the from the rearview mirror in some versions uh but then after that it goes to a little sound and then after that it goes to a warning and it's like we're going to pull over if you don't you know keep your eyes on the road so they're pretty far along in that and i i thought that was a really remarkable uh experience because it is a very delicate balance so easy to tune out obviously they have the hammer there eventually of like pulling over <laughs> um, and eventually they also will kick you out of the program if you pull over too many times he said you know <laughs> you know, if you're truly sleeping at the wheel they'll re- they'll re- you know um retract your access to uh FSD ultimately but it is a fine balance right because they, they you you can start to tune these things out so i mean how many warnings do we tune out uh crazy so the the next big thing that's kind of jumping to mind is okay you talk you've got this developer like what is right to me but the pattern seems to be very quickly like well, why can't an AI just do that? So I start to then think like, is there a version of this that's like a plugin? Like you've created a spec and I'm trying to envision what is it like to use a computer, you know, a year from now as kind of the tooling and the plumbing all matures. One good candidate would seem to be like, it's a chat interface that you can like access the world through and delegate stuff to little agents that go, you know, do stuff and report back. It sure seems like a GPT-4 central process could like use the guardrail spec or something similar to, you know, kind of insulate itself from problems as it like delegates things off to the side. So do you, I mean, first of all, do you see that as realistic and do you have a, a point of view as to kind of how the 
computing experience might evolve in light of that? That's a very, very good question. I think I can go in like a bunch of directions, like in my answer. But I think like my my core belief, like for that um, in that whole space, is I think like humans will be very essential in the loop, and so it will be very hard to automate like all of this away, right? I think primarily because even what correctness means like very different things to different people in different contexts, right? And so um, one common thing, as an example, is like profanity filtering. Um, profanity filtering is like one of the things that like most people can get consensus on is like maybe please uh, if you know you're generating text like make sure it doesn't have profanity but I've also chatted with people who are building you know like chatbots um, where authenticity where the chatbots are you know interacting with like certain audiences and like authenticity is essential right Um, and so if the uh, chatbot is trying to imitate someone or like be in the likeness of someone who does use profanity, uh, then, you know, filtering out that profanity is actually detrimental to the user experience that they're building. I think it is very hard to figure out, like, what those constraints are on a global level. Um, and so I think, like, having, you know, humans and domain uh, domain experts, like, be involved uh, to developers to kind of figure out, like, okay, you know, like, think very think ground up from like what they're building, what they want to use for users to even think about, you know, like what is their desired experience. I think like those inputs will like continue to be very important and like there would need to be like some way to configure, um, you know, um, those inputs or those criteria or just that experience that like a user or a developer wants. Um, so I do think that like, I guess like offloading this entirely to the model uh, or to like a provider, you know, is like going to be hard to be able to achieve like because of that, just because of that constraint. Um, but in terms of like what the programming experience, the, what the developer experience could look like, um, I think one way, and this is like purely hypothetical, I'm you know not not making bets on this at all, but like one way is to like really start thinking like almost configuration first, right? Like there's like a configuration system that allows you to like, um, you know, um, uh, tune the outputs that you want to see from these LLMs. Uh, And even if the underlying machine learning model stays the same, like how that model is like validated, corrected, like how the outputs of that model are post-processed, like that is all what you can configure. And so when people are working with large language models, you know, it's not just text, it's also this configuration that they kind of pass in every time. Um, And this is like, I'm an engineer. And so, you know, I, my, all of my empathy goes to like engineers whenever I'm thinking of like building systems, et cetera. So especially in engineering, like this is a pattern that uh, I do think will be like pretty important where, you know, the prompt isn't sufficient by itself, you know, and just, just choosing the LLM and choosing, you know, temperature or something isn't sufficient by itself, but it's, you know, this configuration framework of like, like, how do I want this output to be like, and even like, how do I want my input to be, you know, like processed or formatted, et cetera. So uh, that is like one pattern that I would kind of see emerge. Yeah. Yeah. Security also jumps out to me as like a big driver here, because as I was thinking about, you know, where would I use this and all the, the things that I've done, I'm kind of like, Increasingly, I see like GPT-4 just running pretty well and giving me like the format that I want. Um, Certainly it has, you know, plenty of errors, but it very rarely goes like, you know, totally off the rails, so to speak. There are there are a lot of vectors that are as yet totally undeveloped that seem like they're going to come online and, and cause a bunch of problems. So having this sort of SLA guarantee layer, validation layer you know, seems really smart in light of like prompt injection for one thing, like as users get more, you know, generally sophisticated and kind of, you know, savvy in their adversarial, you know, attempts, like you, 
gain a lot uh, by having something like this like implemented ahead of time. Similarly, you know, we've seen some really interesting things even in Bing where a user will change or, you know, not even a user, right? This is where it starts to get weird. Like a site owner, we've just, be, we haven't even begun to see like what the SEO people are going to do in the, in the, you know, in the AI search era. So, we, I mean, the battle between search and SEO, the arms race there, I think is going to be made to look pretty pale in comparison compared to what is going to happen now that you can like try to trick the language model at runtime with whatever kind of content. Then there's all these like, you've got model risk too, where you really probably do want to, as awesome as GPT-4 is, and my general strategy right now is like use it for everything, you know, get the quality to an acceptable level and then think about, you know, maybe taking out cost or taking out latency opportunistically or as necessary or what have you. But that that's going to come in due time too. And then people are going to be like, well, you know, what about like, I heard like alpaca, whatever was just as good. And, uh, you know, we can just sort of drop that in there. But now you're just in a world where you have no idea what's going on, right? I mean, your open AIs, your Anthropics, like they have a certain SLA. Um, and I think one huge misconception that people have is like that that SLA sort of is an inherent property of language models when in fact, like it's not at all. And they've worked really hard to get to the level that they have. And like, you know, you definitely cannot take for granted that your, uh, you know, bootlegged llama fine tuned on whatever is going to be, you know, anywhere as safe or friendly to users. I don't know. I'm going on and on, but that seems really important, but it's all that stuff is just starting to kind of emerge from the mists. How much, I guess, how much did that motivate you? Do you see other things like that? I mean, what do you make of all that kind of emergent security stuff that you're you're kind of helping people get in front of? Yeah, yeah. I think like um, I think security is you know a big big operational risk of you know working with these models, especially like prompt injection. Uh, I think we all kind of you know when when Bing uh, Bing Chat was released, I think Sydney, we all kind of saw how easy it was to you know kind of manipulate these models in like specific ways. Um, so. Yeah, I think like my, like how I think about this is very, okay, like how do you decompose the problem, right? Um, I truly think that um, this isn't a problem that would be solved by machine learning specifically. I think like, you know, um, a lot of what OpenAI has managed to achieve is, you know, built on like this concept of like scaling laws where, you know, like as you scale the data, et cetera, you just kind of start to see and, and scale the models, you try to start to see, uh, you know, emergent properties. But um, this is, you know, just from like all of my experience working in machine learning, like there's... Uh, these are fundamentally stochastic systems and it's very hard to like, there's a, there's a big long tail of, you know, like what these stochastic systems like can't have guarantees for, right? Like you cannot have guarantees. Uh, you cannot have data points for all of the different exciting and weird ways that people are going to use these models. And so as a consequence, it's very hard to like add that validation, like from the model piece itself. And so security becomes, you know, an essential thing because that isn't something that you can leave like up to the stochastic system, right? You essentially need to have like um, more determinism like around it. And so my way of thinking about it is to kind of like break it down into like, okay, the model is stochastic. Like what can we do around the model that then adds that, you know, those like, um, those like watertight guarantees. So for prompt injection, for example, like the, um, 
things that are really exciting to me are both like on the input and output side, right? You sandwich the LLM API call with like, you know, input validation, output validation to essentially ensure that you have like multiple layers of security that, you know, make sure that your model isn't behaving in ways that you don't want it to. Um, so some of the ways I, I like, you know, familiar with like some of the uh, more exciting, like uh, new developments in, in, you know, like protecting against prompt injection, but also, you know, on the um, on the output side of things, like I think a lot of those uh, corrections are like an input validation, but like on the output side of things, if you know that there's behaviors that you don't want this large language model to exhibit, it's possible to do that, you know, as like secondary checks on in terms of output validation, right? If you want, for example, um, if you have like known patterns of, uh, you know, prompt injection that people tend to follow, you can do that on input validation to essentially make sure that, you know, there's not, you're only, um, you're almost like gatekeeping like queries and interactions that users can have to the set of things that you can kind of support. So I think like solving, it's it's back to this problem of like kind of what are the, um, like decomposing this whole problem of security into, you know, specific domains, specific applications. And then for those domains, thinking about like, what is the, um, uh, just like what is the end goal that I want my users to have? And then, you know, like adding constraints to filter out like everything that is outside of that goal that is not kind of related to that goal. Um, so like I would I would be very surprised to see if we, I, 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 for example, like chatted with a bunch of teams who have been doing this and like I think that's a common design problem, right? Like where you can't simply rely on the LLM. Like there's a reason, for example, like we don't have like end-to-end -end machine learning systems, um, right? Like you, you kind of have like, um, some subcomponent be machine learning and then some checkpoint that has like either human or like a more deterministic, um, you know, a component like verifying or validating the output of the machine learning system. And then you know, like another downstream thing that may be machine learning, but, but decomposing it and, you know, like adding, um, adding different layers of security on either end of like the ML system is like, yeah, the, the pattern that, it, uh, that most people when they try to like production these things will kind of like see happen. Security in depth, defense in depth is definitely, uh, I think, going to become really important. Another version of this, too, is models talking directly to other models in vector form. Um, seems like it's going to become a huge trend. Uh, we had the authors of Blip 2 on the show a while back. And, you know, that I think of that as such an emblematic foreshadowing of what's to come where they're able to take a frozen vision model and a frozen language model and very quickly train a connector model that essentially converts the encoding of the image to something in some unspeak, literally unspeakable thing in the language embedding space in a way that then allows you to have like dialogue with the language model about the image. I actually love that. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but I love that example because this like literally is like research that I've done, you know, in my master's and that, you know, uh, I worked with some collaborators and I have a paper about this that does like these kind of joint embeddings uh, in language, in vision space uh, for, I think we did this in the fashion domain where you have, you know, some fashion embeddings and then some text associated with it. How do you project it into a single space or into a single like, you know, projection space so that you're able to like, uh, figure out similarity between, you know, like uh, es essentially like using language, figure out like what are similar images, etc. So it's a, it's a yeah, it's a body of work that is like pretty interesting and like opens up like so many so many cool capabilities. I mean, the fact that that's going to work seemingly across, you know, I, I'm still 
educating myself on this, but I really just see so many examples of like, even just simple linear maps from one space to another that people are kind of able to, you know, now bridge these different encoded or latent spaces, whatever you want to, you know, embedding spaces. I think that's going to be a huge trend that will bring a lot better performance out of a lot of systems because like, why would you go through this natural language bottleneck if you have the, you know, a much richer representation of an image or for that matter, a medical scan or, you know, a sound or whatever, like you have the sound of the bird in an audio file. You're not going to project that down into language long-term, you know, and be like a sound of birds is heard or whatever, and then feed that into the, you know, the language model. You're going to figure out how to represent that in the language models space, but in like a way that is truly unspeakable that I just see so much force going in that direction. But then the obvious worry there is like, well, now you've opened yourself up to God knows what, <laughs> you know, like the space of possibility there is so vast. It's totally untestable. It's like incomprehensible on the input side. So what can be done about it? I think, again, this is like a really good answer. <laughs> like start validating your outputs, people. <laughs> this is really, this is really important. Uh, and it's only going to get more important. Like you could, I think one thing people are probably really underestimating is they can create a system today that behaves pretty predictably and the world underneath it is going to change in such a way that it may start to expose their vulnerabilities over time. I mean, in some sense, software kind of always works that way. You know, we've seen like Windows patches way, you know, way downstream after launch. But I don't know, this seems a little bit different. Yeah, I think I think it's a very interesting point. I do think I think it's like this fundamental idea of like, you know, more sensory, like input from more sensors, if you're able to have that and code that, I think that just leads to like better performance. Uh, and it's also like going back to this idea of like grounding that I was talking about earlier. Like you have like some ML system that like projects it in some space. How do you make sure that that projection is correct or not? And and if you have this idea of grounding where you have like, you know, this other uh, sensory input that is also supposed to be projected into something, you can use that as like a, as, as we, like you can use that as like self-correction or like self-verification systems, right? So we kind of like saw this like while I was a, um, uh, you know, uh, Drive AI, which is the software startup that I worked at. I think we had this where uh, the performance uh, with using just LiDAR versus using, you know, like if you have cameras in the, as part of your inputs as well, in addition to LiDAR, you just kind of like have better, a better understanding of the state that the car is in. Uh, and you're able to, you know, kind of like have better, just um, just make better decisions overall. So um, I think it's a, it's a, in my opinion, I think it's a net positive thing because it allows us to also like enforce these guardrails, you know, across like multiple dimensions, right? Because uh, it allows us to kind of figure out like where things might break down and then add like checks and systems there in place. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see a world where we can have like all of these vectors embedded in the same space and, and there's a lot of like interoperability between them. Yeah. So essentially you're describing a validation step that is in coherence of like semantic interpretation of different input signals. I'm trying to think of any example of that that I've seen in the wild. I guess you're pointing to one in the self-driving car uh, area. Maybe I want to just kind of throw a few other kind of safety control, et cetera, sort of paradigms at you and just have you react to those, not in a like better or worse sort of way. I mean, I think obviously, again, defense in depth, like there's there's a place for probably all of these <laughs> different things. Maybe in just kind of comparing and contrasting some of these other 
approaches to what you're building. Again, it can help enlighten people as to, you know, how you're thinking about it and how, you know, what kinds of uh, use cases, you know, your project is best suited for. So I've got a handful. One is the, like most people listening to this will be most familiar with OpenAI, obviously. So their moderation endpoint, uh, which briefly you can like take an output, bump it up against the, the moderation endpoint. It gives you like a flag of, hey, you might have one of these like finite number of, uh, you know, problematic content types. And then I believe you can really do with that what you will still. I don't know that they even enforce any, uh, <laughs> you know, particular action uh, downstream of the moderation endpoint. Uh, but essentially you're classifying stuff into, you know, into one of these categories. That's obviously pretty simple. So where do you think that kind of falls short? Um, I think it's great. I think it's very finite in scope. So if you were to take something like that and then expand that out into, you know, like any use case that you want to verify or validate, but, you know, that that is like uh, at least programmatically verifiable or, or verifiable with the machine learning model, um, flag specific things within that output that may be problematic for that. And then also allow you to configure how you want all of those, uh, you know, um, invalid outputs to be dealt with, right? I think that is how I think about guardrail. So um, moderation. So if you think about moderation, I think specifically like profanity filtering, et cetera, is like one of the validators out of like a, a number of validators within the library. Um, so it, you know, you, you take some LLM output, you give it to that profanity filtering validator, it'll tell you whether there's profanity or not in your LLM output. And depending on how you configure that validator, it will also like correct that for you. So for example, generate that text without profanity, or, you know, maybe just filter those sentences that have profanity in there. But you can just take that pattern and apply it across a bunch of other use cases. So if there's code that is generated that, you know, maybe maybe is incorrect or, you know, is not executable, you can do the same thing for code. If there's like summaries that are generated from some source text, but, you know, those summaries are incorrect or invalid for some reason, you can do that. If there's, you know, like structured data that you've extracted, which is like specific parts of it are incorrect, you can basically apply that same paradigm. So it's taking that moderation endpoint, but, you know, making it like a very general, very accessible thing that you can use. In practice, what do you see people doing most to fix on fail? Like you gave a, a number of different kind of choices there where one could be like, you know, pop an outright error. The other could be like rerun the whole call and just like hope for better the second time. Um, but you're getting pretty granular in between as well with like maybe just fix a little bit or like snip the profanity. How do you, how would you like advise people to think about which option they should take in that moment of a problem? Um, and what do you see people actually like doing today in the community? I think that's a, that's a hard problem to answer because like, I can't tell people what their, um, I guess what their pain tolerance is like for their applications, right? Like I think fundamentally, um, you know, there's like some cases where you're like, oh yeah, if this, if this doesn't pass, like this. LLM output is of no use to me, right? And so I wanted to either be corrected or just like filter it out. I can't use it in this like in-between state. Um, and so re-asking is like one of the things that was, that is pretty valuable. Like it, it allows you to, you know, kind of like just uh, from the user perspective, it's like a sync, like I don't want to say one shot because it, there's like, an, it's an overloaded term because, you know, ML one shot, uh, et cetera. But like, it's like from a user perspective, it's a single API call that, you know, like, on the back end might make, you know, like multiple API calls or et cetera to the large language model, but like give you like either a collected output or it'll tell you like, hey, 
this is just like incorrect and I can't handle it. So, so for very important use cases or for very high stakes use cases where if a validation check fails, you can't use it. I think like re-asking is probably the most effective thing that I see people use a bunch. Uh, I think like filtering is another one. So uh, specifically for like summarization or for profanity, etc. If, you know, there's like some sentences that don't, um, you know, uh, aren't information dense or that have profanity, you would be able to, you know, have like that granular control of like filtering out those specific things. Um, and I think like another one, which is like the default setting if you're using guardrails is like a no-op. So essentially you would still run all of the validations on an LLM output, uh, but you would only like, if validation fails, you wouldn't do anything. You would just like return the output as is to the user. So same as if they were using um, an LLM without guardrails, but it would just like log everything that went wrong. Um, and, you know, you can access that log and like figure out, you know, do I want to like, do I want to iterate on my model or my prompt or something you know, using that. Um, so I think those are probably some of my favorite ones, but like there's also like uh, raise an exception or like deterministically fix it if it's possible to determine uh, deterministically fix. So, yeah, there's a bunch of there's a suite of options within the um, within the framework. Open AIs. We'll go with open AIs first. They also recently with GPT-4 launched this evals library. I'm sure you've studied that a little bit. I guess my surface understanding is that's more of like a ben architecture that's like a benchmarking suite versus like a, a runtime aid. But maybe, you know, what, what have you learned or what, what did you think was smart in the evals uh, implementation or approach to validating language model outputs? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think my my interpret I, I really like evals. I think my interpretation is the same, which is that it's like this offline, you know, benchmark that allows them to internally test out um, how well um, you know their LMs are doing for for tasks that people care about. And so I, I think like one of my favorite things about it is just the. Um, I guess this is maybe not technical, but maybe more from like a product or go to market standpoint. I really like how they, um, it's almost like this way to crowdsource, like how people want to use their large language models, right? Like all of the ways that people are using it and like all of the ways that it's going wrong, uh, take that and almost make it part of your, like your training data set or your evaluation framework so that the models themselves are, you know, are, are primed to serve those use cases better. Um, so I think that's probably my favorite thing. Uh, I've seen like other folks use it to just like, scour through it and maybe figure out, you know, interesting prompts uh, that they can borrow. So uh, I, I've like uh, seen some people do that, which is pretty interesting, which I think is like a nice way to like mine that library. But uh, yeah, that's probably the, um, I, I see it as a, a totally different framework, basically. I thought it was a nice touch also that they tied uh, or essentially created a, a separate lane for GPT-4 API access for folks who contributed to the, to the evals library. How about like Anthropic's constitutional AI approach? Again, it seems like there's a certain, that's obviously a training protocol as compared to a runtime validation, but do you see commonalities there or have you taken inspiration from uh, their approach? Yeah, the constitutional AI stuff is interesting, but uh, I think it's back to like some of the, some of the things I said earlier, which is that like, it is essential to, you know, have like deterministic checks, right? deterministic post hoc validation because like just by training itself like the models are not you know super sufficient so um i think like 
yeah, I think like runtime verification, runtime validation is like the most exciting kind of problem for me. So that's how I think about it. But it is it is pretty interesting. I think this other aspect of it is just like um, configurability, you know, so also a similar thing that I touched upon earlier, but being able to configure, you know, like what uh, what correctness means to you and like enforce that specifically rather than, you know, having it is globally understood, agreed upon like standard of correctness. Um, so I really like that world where, you know, like, developers like have that agency to configure what that means to them. So I think that's also being able to do that in this post hoc setting where you don't have to go and train a model every time your definition of correctness changes or every time your use case changes, I think is like, you know, um, it, it like opens up access um, uh, to a much broader audience. Yeah, I feel like there's a there's an opportunity though to sort of bring the constitutional critique to runtime. I, I listened to the... Um, the guy, his name is escaping me right now, but one of the authors, one of the lead authors on the diplomacy paper, the Cicero model that came out of Meta, he was describing a general strategy of like, how can we bring more compute forward to runtime? Like the old systems of like, you know, Deep Blue and Chess was like super intensive, you know, compute at runtime to the point of being like borderline, largely a tree search. Uh, more so than an AI, or as we think of it today anyway. But like with our language models, you know, it's not been quite as obvious how to do that. And it seems like, again, this, this sort of framework of rather than lean on all that embodied compute and training, like bring some of it somehow more forward to runtime and, you know, apply like all these checks that, Essentially, like the more compute you can spend, like the more likelihood you have of of getting like really good output. Essentially, is is his mega you know observation. You talk about like deterministic, but some of these things they're not they're still not really deterministic, right? Like if I the more I critique, like I still have this kind of inherent you know it's layered non determinism, right? More than which hopefully kind of limits my my problems, but still there is some like in most cases, right, there's still some amount of stochastic stuff that is not like reduced. I think that's a very good point. And I should, I should, I should like clarify, um, you know, the, I should I, not clarify, I should qualify what determinism means. Um, so I think there's, uh, there's essentially different ways to like evaluate or to, to validate outputs, right? And, and I think like, inherent, like basically one of those ways is, you know, like taking an LM output, creating a new prompt that, you know, asks GPT-4 again, like, okay, is this output correct or not given these criteria? And uh, maybe give me like a yes or no, or like maybe some some binary response that allows me to assess this, right? And that is like one way of doing validation that is not deterministic at all, uh, but it is, you know, like additional layer of security. Uh, but I think like the, there's also like a bunch of other techniques and like, um, uh, yeah, other like validation rules that people can use. So some of them are more kind of like rule based um, or heuristic based. Some other of them are like, you know, not using um, LLM APIs, but using, you know, like maybe smaller high, high precision models that are, you know, like trained on like subsets of data. So even if they're not deterministic, they're A, like trained on your own data. And because you have control over the model, you can, you know, maybe do things like set random seeds, et cetera, so that you essentially get even if it's an output that is, you know, like generated by a machine learning model, it's an output that you have control over and you can control its randomness on, right? Either in terms of like changing the seed or changing some of the parameters or just like being able to like generate or throw more training data added. So that 
uh, both of those frameworks are you know like one is like purely deterministic and then one is also like more more deterministic in terms of you know being able to control randomness um so when i say deterministic i, I i'm truly referring to you know like an ensemble of like all of these techniques and so some of them are you know basically all over the map in terms of like what their randomness kind of looks like but that was a good that was a good like little catch yeah <laughs> one obvious question from a developer standpoint is what overhead does this create and you know, I get, you can measure that in a number of ways, right? Like token overhead, which is cost overhead, maybe like complexity overhead, latency, you know, increase. Uh, and then maybe some like just tensions also in a product experience. Like I think about the Bing experience where fascinating, honestly, that uh, that one of the biggest corporations in the world went with this as their approach. They spit out the token you know, in a streaming token by token way, and then retract it from you if they determine that it went off the rails. So like, I mean, that is crazy to me that Microsoft like launched with that paradigm. Uh, I, I do get why, of course, because like people don't want to sit there and wait for the whole thing to be generated before they can start to see what's happening. There's a really powerful draw to the streaming experience. Uh, so much so that, you know, Microsoft did this, but like, it's crazy that, you know, the, these the biggest corporation, in the, one of the biggest corporations in the world is willing to knowingly like set up a system where they're going to yeah, sometimes emit some, you know, toxic content or whatever. And then, well, I'll just kind of swipe that. <laughs> swipe from, it off. Yeah. yeah. We're in a brave new world uh, for sure. So, yeah, I guess, you know, all those dimensions, how do you think about kind of overhead and, you know, again, how would you kind of guide developers toward minimizing that overhead are there things that could be done in parallel or you know what's what's kind of the smart version of this so that you know the the because a lot of people are going to be like okay yeah but the ceo says we can't wait for that yeah i think that's really uh it's a really good question honestly um interestingly before i before i start you know talking about how i think about overhead you would be surprised by how um for specific applications like if you're not in the chatbot world like how comfortable people are with latency uh, as long as you know if they're getting like high quality output at the end of it so i when i was kind of initially building this like latency was a concern and like some of the design decisions i made you know um uh, support that hypothesis like re-asking for example you know it does not piecemeal re-asking like it aggregates stuff and then re-ask so like, it's a one-shot kind of like uh request um but but people are pretty okay waiting for if they're in this world where correctness matters to them people are pretty okay, you know, like attacking on some additional latency in order to have that correctness. Um, but with that said, I think like overhead is a pretty important question. I've actually found like token overhead is an interesting one because I found like um, this interesting um, balance between, you know, like how efficiently can you like write a prompt if you're using the structured prompting strategy that guardrails offers versus how efficient are your prompts when, you know, everything is in words, right? Um, and so, like, for some use cases, interestingly, I have seen um, that, like, being able to structure your prompts, you know, even if you would think that it's more tokens, it's actually more efficient because, like, all of that structure and all of that those constraints, you know, which are, like, now maybe in symbols or in some domain-specific language, uh, end up, you know, being represented in, like, words, which is way more, you know, just way more expensive in some cases, right? Um, and, and that's a similar, like, I've seen that with complexity as well. 
where uh, if you're trying to get your LLM outputs to be like structured in some way or to be, you know, um, to have some behavior, etc. Uh, right now, the only way to do it is, you know, to like prompt it yourself and like do a bunch of prompts, etc. But guardrails kind of like abstract some of that complexity and some of that, you know, some of that exploration that you have to do away from you, right? Because here's this like, um, here's this DSL that like, is tested and like works across a bunch of these LLM providers. And you essentially, as a developer, you don't have to think about like, how do I write a prompt that will give me this output that is structured this way? Like I just, you know, I just write it in this like known way. Um, and that, you know, is like almost easier in terms of development. Like I have um, tweeted this uh, some time ago and um, also a plug for my Twitter, follow me at uh, Shreya R if you, if you don't already. And I, basically talk about guardrails and NAI all, all the time there. But um, I tweeted this, which is that like, even if you're in this setup where you don't care about validation, if you just care about like getting structured outputs, like it, it's a pain to kind of like think about how to do that, right? So just use guardrails for like getting those structured outputs across like LMs and like, it's just, it's useful in and of, it, in and of itself, right? Because you don't have to like write prompts and like iterate on prompts, et cetera. So help, help people understand a little bit more like that complexity that you're taking out and, and how you're doing it on the just first question of like, can I get the desired format back? Yeah, good question. So um, I think how guardrails kind of like the entry point for developers is like creating this spec, which is, um, you know, a markup language uh, where you're able to specify here's my here's like an output schema. Right. So if you're if you if I want an output, here's, you know, like all of the different components that I want in that output. If that's a JSON, then you're able to kind of configure that. If it's, you know, just a string with like some additional validation on top of it, like maybe it's just SQL string that you're generating and you want some additional validation, you're able to kind of configure that. Right. But in this case where, um, but, but that is like totally separate from your prompt. That is just you thinking about like, what is the output that I want? And like, how do I write that output in like a schema definition perspective? Um, in the rail, so guardrails basically has rail specs, reliable AI markup language. Uh, that's the specification framework. And so in a rail spec, in addition to the output schema, you can also have like a prompt separately. And then all you need to add on the prompt essentially is like the high level task description, right? Because everything that describes like make sure my output is this way and make sure my output has these constraints and make sure my output is formatted that way. All of that you do in a schema, which is like a specific, like it's a programming language, right? So you can think of it in terms of like, if you can write like XML or you can write markup, you can write that and you don't have to convert that into English and then, you know, do a bunch of experimentation to make sure that your LLM API will like understand what that means. Um, so like it allows people to like, basically, yeah, it allows people to only think about like the pain of prompt engineering essentially goes away a little bit and it allows you to think about like interacting with these LLMs in a more programmatic fashion um, to some to some degree. So that's, you know, that's the complexity that gets um, that guardrails kind of takes on. Um, so one of the exciting things about that is that the contract between the user and uh, guardrails is basically the spec, right? And then it's guardrails' job um, to translate that spec into a prompt. So the user gives, you know, like a high level prompt and everything, but you know, the output schema definition is translated into a prompt uh, based on guardrails. So um, if you work with these LLMs, you would know that, you know, they basically like change, the version internally gets updated like all the time. Uh, and as as part of like the, the behavior of the large language model changes, right? And I've experienced some of that uh, as I've been building this library, but you would essentially kind of find that like 
even if the model version changes, as a developer, you have the same uh, Rails spec. And then guardrails just like compiles that Rails spec into different prompts, uh, depending on you know, like what is most effective. Uh, for a specific LLM. So, so I think like that is also, you know, like from a developer point of view, you don't have to, you know, um, uh, wrangle like model version updates and like model quality issues to some degree. That, that sounds really useful. I was just doing some stuff yesterday where I'm doing some task automation and I used the format trick, right? Everybody kind of uh, who, who uses language models much comes across the format trick, uses format in the response. As far as I know, that came out of OpenAI. As um, far as I've been able to track that back through Riley Goodside, you know, who like very much popularized it, he attributes it to Boris Power, who's at OpenAI. Before that, I don't know. Uh, maybe Boris just came up with it on his own. But I do run into this stuff where I'm like, well, how intricate do I really want this format to be? A lot of times I'm just like, use this format, just like XML open tag, content, XML close tag. That way I can at least kind of easily just use a regular expression, just kind of parse out whatever's within those tags. And then if it has a prefix or a suffix or an I hope this was helpful to you, you know, whatever, I can like get rid of that cruft and have what I want. But then I usually haven't gone that much farther than that because I'm like, then I'm getting into like hand coding XML in like the playground or whatever. And that's not great. <laughs> so right off the bat, I think that is maybe something we underemphasized at the beginning uh, of the conversation is just like, there's just a straight convenience factor associated with, at least from a developer standpoint, being able to write something in a little bit higher level abstraction and have the thing kind of translate to, you know, a, a more detailed prompt that will get you the parsable result that you want. No, yeah, totally. I, I kind of found that as well. Um, when I was doing a lot of my prototyping, I had prototyped it with GBD3. Um, and then I had a similar experience, but I think anybody who's worked with GBD3 and 3.5 knows that, you know, you have like, here's the output you were looking for and like, hope that was helpful, et cetera. Like all of these statements, right? Which are like, oh, just give me the JSON, um, which is what I want. Um, and then I think like with guardrails, um, since release, I've had like uh, a community contributor actually like, push this effort to, you know, like add instruction tags and do a bunch of experimentation to make sure like what works well with GBD 3.5. And so from a developer standpoint, you write like one spec and then depending on if it's GBD 3 or 3.5, you know, it basically like compiles a prompt a little bit separately um, so that, you know, it just it just works. Like I think even with GBD 3.5, I've had a bunch of people testing it out and they just get the get the thing that they're looking for without a lot of that. Um, extra, um, you know, filler text that maybe that makes it not work as well. Yeah, it's interesting that you're that you are also then translating that to other models. Which the angle that I was going to mention a second ago was, it seems like there's a dynamic here where, as people kind of try to think about like where's all where is all this going? You know, how is the market going to shape up? Who's going to lead? Are we going to have like one AI to rule them all, or is it going to be you know? Many, you know, or so an oligopoly of large language model providers. Oh my God. So, where's this all going? One force that I see kind of pulling everybody in line with OpenAI is just the fact that all of these things are getting developed against OpenAI's state of the art behavior at the time, almost like across the board. And so then if you're a different language model, large language model provider, you know, if you're an Anthropic or a Cohere or a, you know, 
Google or a, you know, alpha out of Europe or like whatever, then it seems like you have a really strong incentive to basically try to be as much like OpenAI as possible when it comes to like supporting all these things. But then that kind of just sounds like, well, then how are you going to compete on that, right? If, if like if you've got to expend all this energy to basically just make sure that like people even can switch to you without things that they're kind of currently assuming will work breaking, um, you know, that's not a great position to be in, you know, to be spending all your time just like trying to catch up in that way. But I don't know that there's any way around that for other providers. So do, do you see that dynamic similarly? Um, and do you, do, does this experience like lead you to think that we may see kind of concentration, if not necessarily of providers, at least in terms of like how language models behave? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. Um, I do think I'm, I'm pretty, like, I personally believe that um, there would be a big diversity in terms of model providers. I think, like, we are in this almost, it, it's kind of insane to see just from, like, I've, I've worked in a mall my whole life, but, um, or my whole adult life, but um, but it's it's kind of insane to see just the amount of, like, activity and excitement around the space. Like, there's, you know, people training and fine-tuning deep learning models that, you know, weren't even in the space like a few months ago. And that's really awesome, right? And that that just that just that amount of like demand like makes it so that there's, you know, more need and more providers that will come up. Um, I had like people who were like, oh, I um, I really like guardrails, I really like OpenAI, but it's just too expensive for what I'm trying to build. And so I can you make this work with, you know, an open source model as an example. Um, so I, I do think that we're going to see a lot of that that um, proliferation happening of, you know, great performing models from like different price points, different latencies, different providers, et cetera. Um, so I'm pretty, pretty um, excited about that world. I think the other interesting aspect of this is that like because um, a lot of this was unlocked by OpenAI, we're in this space where um, people are, you know, building these frameworks, et cetera, around what is the most performant um, provider, what is the most performant model. And because like those frameworks are maybe like indexing too high, highly on OpenAI, like there's, you know, this incentive for other model providers to, you know, offer inter interoperability with, with for those specific functionality, right? So I do think that like um, the, the standards are evolving at the same time as like the models are getting better. So there's this like interesting kind of dynamic between them. So at least for the foreseeable future, there's like this big incentive for other model providers to also, you know, provide similar functionality or at least not have regressions, right? So that incentivizes people to, you know, like maybe switch over to them um, for a variety of reasons. But I do think that like just the pace of innovation means that, you know, there will be um, some... Um, just like a more level playing field at some point, and then it'll be very interesting to see like what are the specializations that different uh, different model providers offer, or, or even like the different open source models, like what that specialization is looking like. Okay, here's my three quick. You can answer this quickly or not at all, whatever as you want. Uh, but I, I typically, if there's time, I usually ask these three final questions. One is favorite AI apps, experiences, tools, whatever that you are loving that you would recommend to others. I'm, I'm going to be very basic and say Copilot. Um, I think Copilot is awesome. I have I use it extensively, and I recently like um, had to set up my dev environment from scratch and wasn't like didn't have Copilot, and I was like, oh, what am I missing? What is why is my why am I coding slower? So yeah, definitely Copilot. 
I can totally relate to that. When they went paid and it stopped working, I was like in a panic until I realized that I could just pay for it and make it come back. Uh, but yeah, it was like, I'm not going to be doing this without this now. Am I? That's like the, yeah, not to be endured. Uh, okay. Second one, hypothetical situation. Sometime in the future, a million people already have the Neuralink implant. If you get one, then you can control your computer devices with your thoughts. Would you be interested in getting uh, a Neuralink implant at that point? I would not. Um, I can imagine that, like, I don't know, as like a as a weird like straw man. What if I'm in like a presentation or something and I'm computing, you know, controlling my laptop and my brain and I get distracted, right? Like, does that mean that my slide deck now is on like whatever I'm distracted by? Like, I think, I think there's, you know, like there's, again, like having guardrails and like having layers of security between, you know, uh, thinking versus like something being executed on a different system. I think it's important to kind of have like some, some filtration mechanism there. Uh, so I would skip on it, but I would be very excited in that world. Like I would, yeah, I, I would like, I would, I would like inhabiting that role, even if I'm not actively participating in it. Great answer. I love it. Um, final one, just zooming out, you know, as wide as you can, you know, and thinking as far in the future as you have any sense of what might happen. What are your biggest hopes for and fears for society at large as this AI moment continues to unfold? I think it's a great question. Um, let's see. I think my biggest concerns, once again, I don't think I'm very, I have any special insight here, but I do think like job displacement is something that I think about quite a bit. Um, and thinking about, you know, like what are the, you know, just like what are going to be the, um, what is the, what is the amount of work, you know, that would still be valuable in this future where a lot of knowledge work can maybe be at least assisted or like a lot of knowledge workers can be made like more efficient right and uh than than what they are like today um so what does that mean for the future of work i think that is something that i think about um and let's see i think a hope is that i am able to live a life where i just don't have to do any of these like mundane things that end up taking so much of you know our parts of life so um in 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 the future like maybe i don't have to do my own taxes and maybe you know i don't have to book my own flights i can just say like book this flight for me at this date and just find me the best price etc so being able to you know like automate away a lot of those parts and then just do like whatever fun parts of life are i think like that would be something that i'm excited about and hopeful for yeah uh go check out the package uh if you're building with large language models and if you're facing like any issues where you're like i was just working and it's not working anymore how do i how do i kind of fix that check out guardrails um and um yeah uh follow me on twitter <laughs> Yeah, it's a beautiful vision. We can all hope for it. Shreya Rajpal, thank you very much for being part of the Cognitive Revolution. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you again for inviting me. really enjoyed spending my afternoon chatting with you. 